to pray. Father, now as we come to the scripture, I pray you'd open our minds. Uh, you promised to do that. Uh, if this word is true, and it is, you have said that you've written your very law upon our hearts and minds. So when we read this word, it should resonate. That which the Spirit has written in this book will resonate with that which the Spirit has done in our own minds and hearts to make for a joyful reunion. So I pray that, um, Holy Spirit, you do that work in us even now to make this word come alive. And we may, not how, we may know how to live it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews, please, in chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I want to read this chapter. You'll notice that the table is set for communion. I know this isn't our normal week for communion, but I trust you'll forgive me for serving communion on an off week. Hebrews chapter 8. Hear the word of God. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty and having in heaven a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Uh, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the, than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. Away, I want to draw your attention uh, this morning to the middle of verse 10. Just this one piece of sentence. The middle of verse 10, where the author of Hebrews, quoting the prophet Jeremiah at this point, writes, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Now remember, the reason that the author of Hebrews is at this particular juncture, at this particular place, is because he wants them and therefore us, he wants them and therefore us, to have full assurance of hope. Full assurance of hope for the purpose of, so that, he says, we may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, he wants us to be so confident of our own salvation in Christ, 
wants us to be so confident of our own salvation in Christ that we wouldn't be sluggish. It wouldn't lead us to, to being lazy or apathetic towards Christ, but rather that we'd be zealous, imitating those who've gone before us and even those in our midst who are, uh, through faith and patience, inheriting the great promises of God because that's the, the end result. He wants us to receive. He wants us to inherit ultimately, the promises of God. So that's his purpose. Now, when he does that, of course, writing to a group of people he calls Hebrews, he he can't help but think of God's covenants, of God's covenants with them. And in so doing, he thinks of Jesus, very naturally speaking, because Jesus is the fulfillment of those covenants. And so he wants to place our minds, if we're going to have this full assurance of hope, he wants to place our minds around Jesus, upon Jesus. And that is no trite thing. It isn't a trite thing to say that our minds should be set on Christ. Uh, In fact, if your minds aren't set on Christ, if our minds are not set on Christ, there's something terribly wrong with us as believers in Christ. He is our everything. And so our minds are to be set upon Him. Our minds are to easily turn to Him. Uh, And it shouldn't be a hard thing. It should be so much at the forefront of our minds that we should be thinking of Him uh, at every turn. And so He wants to set our minds upon Jesus. And again, in so doing, he, he, he thinks of these covenants of God. And if you'll notice in verse, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 8, which I read, I read it last week as well, as you remember. But as I read verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So he, he's highlighting the ministry of Jesus, and he's highlighting this Uh, mediation of Jesus, this covenant mediation of Jesus. Uh, The ministry of Jesus he highlights uh, because, in fact, uh, Jesus' ministry is better than the priestly ministry in the Old Covenant. You remember, uh, there was this covenant that God made with Moses, and Moses was the mediator, if you will, of that particular covenant. And uh, there were priests in that covenant. And those priests would represent the people of God to God. And they would go before Him. And that was all well and good, but the Scripture said that was simply a shadow of what was to come. The reality of that shadow is Jesus. He is our High Priest. And His priesthood, His ministry, His priesthood is better. And His priesthood is better for at least two reasons. One is that He's perfect. Unlike the Old Testament priests who weren't perfect and had to offer sacrifices for themselves, and so there was always a wondering, will God really accept them? There's no wondering about Jesus. He is perfect. And so God will always, the Father will always accept the intercession of Jesus because He's perfect. And secondly, He's of the order of Melchizedek, and I don't have time to go through all that again, But he's of the order of Melchizedek, thus he lives forever. So he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he's alive and he's the living guarantee of everything. If ever we wonder if the promises of God uh, would be fulfilled, all we need to do is look at Jesus because he is the guarantee of them all. And so long as he lives, all of those promises are guaranteed uh, to all those who draw near to God. Through him, So it's a better ministry because he has a, a better priest. And not only that, but it's a better ministry because of where he ministers. 
He ministers not in an earthly tabernacle, not in a tabernacle made with human hands, but he ministers in the Holy of Holies in heaven. He ministers right in the very presence of God. So he's saying the ministry of Jesus is better than the old covenant. So don't go back there. Don't rely there. But trust instead in Jesus, the reality of all that that old covenant uh, pointed to. But then he also says something here. He says that the covenant he mediates is better because it's founded on better promises. That is, that there are better promises in this new covenant that Jesus oversees, that Jesus is the go-between for. There are better promises there. And so, so this is a better covenant. And so we should, we should have greater assurance because it's a better, it's a better covenant. Um, uh, you might remember from last Sunday that there was a flaw in the old covenant. Notice verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so the question is, what is the fault of the, new, of the, of the old covenant that the new covenant corrects? What's the fault of the, of the old covenant? Well, it wasn't in the promises made. It wasn't in the God who had made them. But rather, it was in the people with whom the covenant was made, the people of Israel, just like you and me. Notice in verse 8, it says, For he finds fault with them. He didn't find fault with the covenant. He found fault with them. Because you see, this covenant at Sinai was an agreement by God to bless his people so long as they obeyed. So long as they were faithful to the covenant. And to be faithful to something means that you're one who is full of faith. So much full of faith. So you've bought in so much that you're willing you desire, you love to abide by all its conditions. You say, of course this is true. I believe it and I'm faithful to it. And as one who believes it, you say, yes, I'll abide by it. I'll live by it. And so God calls his people to live by it and he gives them great, great promises of blessing. For instance, in, in Exodus, in chapter 19, in verse 6, he tells them uh, what the fruit will be of their obedience. He writes this, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he says, listen, if you'll obey, here, here's my promise. You know, I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be my treasured possession. I own everything, but you'll be the very ones upon whom I will show my favor. You'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a, a royal priesthood. That is, that is you'll be a, a kingly nation of people who, who come to me, and I will receive you. And you'll be a holy nation set apart from all others for my blessing. But you must be faithful to my covenant. And if you're unfaithful to my covenant, if you don't obey, if you don't follow... If you don't believe, then you'll be cut off. You'll be cursed. And every horrible thing that you can imagine will befall you because you'll be separated from the life that is in God. Now the great problem, therefore, with that first covenant wasn't with God's promises, but it was with the people. They were, as a whole, unfaithful. 
If you read through the scripture from beginning to end, especially the Old Testament, what you'll find is that their hearts were, in fact, hardened and they were unfaithful. Oh, it, it may be that something might happen that they might return for a moment, but, 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 but it didn't take too long until things would unravel and the people would become unfaithful to God again. That was the problem. And so God could never bless them with these great promises of the, being his treasured possession, uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, that, that never could happen. It never did happen. And all those days, oh, there were some sparks of faithfulness and some. But as a whole, they were never blessed with the full blessing of God. And so he would begin to speak of a new covenant. And Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of that new covenant. So that he is the one on our behalf who does all the obeying. He's the one who fulfills it. And therefore, he then is rewarded with all the blessings. And everyone, therefore, who is in him, who trusts in him, become recipients of the great blessings of God. And that's the new covenant. You see, the the way the new covenant begins to, to, to correct the flaw of the old covenant is that God brings one who's just like us to fulfill it for us. So he does all the obeying. And because he does all the obeying, we receive all of the blessing. And he, he delineates it like this in Hebrews 8, and this is out of Jeremiah chapter 31. And notice these great promises. He says, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. He said, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And he said, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor And each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. He says, listen, if you're in this new covenant that's been fulfilled, earned by Jesus, then you'll be one whose law will be in your hearts and minds. You'll be one who will belong to me. You'll be one who will know me. You'll be one whose sins aren't remembered any longer. Now, you might remember the last week uh, I asked you to think about those promises. And I asked you to, to watch your life. Now, you may not have done that because I know you. So you have a number of weeks to do this because I'm going to be on this little piece for the next few weeks. But, uh, but this week I want to take up this very first one that I will put my laws in your mind. And I'll write them on your hearts. And I want to ask the question, what's that mean? I mean, what's that mean to be a person who's, who's, who's one who's, where God's laws are, are put in your mind and written on your heart? I mean, that's his promise in this new covenant. And the new covenant has come in Jesus. You remember when Jesus was uh, at the Last Supper, we call it, that Passover a meal with his disciples, he took that cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so he says, this new covenant has come. This new covenant is beginning. This new covenant is being inaugurated in my blood. And so the things that have been spoken of in this new covenant now are coming into existence, now are happening. Hadn't happened like this before. Jesus says, from here on out, this is the new covenant. Everyone who believes in me is part of this new covenant. Therefore, we can be expecting that his law is put upon our mind. 
and that his laws are written upon our hearts. Do you know that about yourself? And so the question is, what's that mean really? Um, some general observations. First, uh, he talks about our mind and our heart in this, and, and this is a little bit of what we call Hebrew parallelism. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, Hebrew, especially poetry, didn't rhyme, but it had these, these, these particular characteristics of, of parallelism, and, and certain, oftentimes one sentence or one phrase or one line would complement the other. And so when he says, I'm going to put my laws in your minds, I'm going to write them on your hearts, there's a certain sense in which that sort of means the same thing. With just a little difference when we look at mind and heart. We talk about one's mind, we certainly are talking about understanding what, what you know to be true, not you know the, the facts that you understand, the concepts involved in your mind. But we realize that the heart includes the mind because your heart can't rejoice in that which the mind doesn't know. There's got to be got to be facts. There's got to be ideas that are there that are known in your mind. But when the Bible speaks of our hearts, it's speaking of something deeper than just our minds. It's talking about the very essence of our being, how we process everything that we know. And whether we, we love it or whether we hate it, or whether we embrace it or we're repulsed by it, or whether we choose to do it or we'll choose not to do it, whether we desire it or whether we're apathetic to it, all the stuff in us that makes us us and makes us say the things we say and think the thoughts we think and do the things we do. That's our very hearts. That's why the author of Hebrews says, protect your heart, guard your heart, because it, from it flow the wellspring of life. Out of our hearts, that's, that's who we are. You want to know somebody's heart, listen to them. You want to know somebody's heart, watch them. You want to know somebody's heart, think along with them. That's the very essence of who they are, Jesus uh, put it like this in a rather negative way, but it helps us understand the heart in, Matthew, in, Mark, excuse me, in Mark in chapter uh, 7. In verse 20 he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, theft murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. He's saying, listen, that's from the heart. The very guts of a person. You see. That's the very wellspring of life. So guard it. So when the author of Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah, says that in this new covenant, what's going to take place in the people of the new covenant, which is believers in Christ. So if you're a believer in Christ, you have to include yourself in this. You have to realize this has happened to me, not in its fullness, because nothing has happened to us in, our, in its fullness yet. And we're still living in this weird time period between the first and second comings of Jesus. And so, 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 so yes, it's here, but, but not in its fullness. Nothing is here in its, in its fullness. Not as we'll know it uh, when Jesus returns. But it's here. And we're experiencing it. We're a part of it. And he says, listen, if you're a part of this, what's happened in your life is that God has put his laws in your mind. And God has written them on your heart, the very essence of your being. And then, the, So the question that I have to ask of me is, is what's that mean? How's that lived out? How do I know that? How's that 
how does that blow up in my own life? How does that work in me? If that's really true, where do I see that? Uh, how do I really see that? Well, we see it in the context of the New Covenant that, that Jesus says there's a, a whole reorientation of your life. Because you see, our minds and hearts were at one point in time hostile towards God. We see that throughout the whole scripture. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. I just note that chapter 6, very, very early on in the history of humanity. Just in chapter 6 of Genesis. It's not like it's chapter even 40 of Genesis. Just chapter 6 of Genesis. God says the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. In the very heart, the very guts of who we are had turned against God and the thoughts were evil. We see that played out in the course of life. And so, so that's the nature of the heart and mind. The thoughts and inclinations being evil, being against God. And now he's saying that a day is going to come when he's going to write his laws on our very hearts. The, the, the very thoughts of God, the very desires of God, the very commands of God, the very holiness of God as reflected in his law, will be written upon our hearts, meaning there must be a dramatic change in our hearts. We see it in the Old Covenant, the problem with the Old Covenant. God kept saying, I love you. I've delivered you. I want to be your God and you be my people and here are my promises to you. If you'll be mine, if you'll follow after me, if you'll be faithful to my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. I mean, what an amazing promise. This is the God of the universe telling a group of people, you'll be my very, very, very special people. No one will be in my heart like you. All you need to do is follow me. And, and why wouldn't they? What's not to love about God? What would be the reason why someone wouldn't follow him? He said, you'll be a royal priest of a holy nation. Just, just follow after me. And continuously they didn't do that. Why? Because of the nature of their minds and hearts. Their minds were hostile towards God. Their hearts were darkened towards him. And favored, rather, themselves over him. Now, do you know that in the context of your own life? I mean, we're not picking on these people. But he said that, so, so when he says, I'm going to do this, he's saying, I'm going to reorient your whole being. It's going to be a radical transformation, a radical, radical, radical change. I mean, the New Testament speaks, for instance, of our, of our minds in relationship to God. For instance, uh, in Romans, in, in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul puts it like this in verse 7. He says, for the mind uh, that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's the nature of a mind that's opposed to God. And he said everybody's mind, apart from this special work of God's grace, is like that. Um, we see it as well uh, in Ephesians and, 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 and chapter 4. Well, actually, chapter 2, uh, which I read to you this morning. Uh, for our call to worship, chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and so walking, following the course of the world and, and following after Satan. Um, in chapter 4, he puts it like this of Ephesians, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. See, those apart from this work in the New Covenant, 
live in the futility of their minds. He goes on to explain it like this. He says, that are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. This isn't an ignorance because they're stupid, because they're not very intelligent. This is a moral ignorance that's the result of a hard heart that looks at the things of God and simply says, no, that's not the way to do that. That's not the right way. And that's how we are inherently. And so again, when when this new covenant comes, you have to understand it's such a radical thing that built into the promise of God's covenant, unlike the old covenant, is this promise of a new heart, of a change in heart. Ezekiel speaks of this, as does what we read in Jeremiah. For instance, in Ezekiel, in chapter 36, in verse uh, 25, he speaks of this new time, Ezekiel does. He said, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You notice, Ezekiel's saying something very similar to what Jeremiah says and the author of Hebrews quotes. First of all, because this is a work of God. He doesn't say, you'll do this. He says, I'll do this. Now, do you ever wonder why he doesn't say, you'll do this? Well, it must be because we can't. This is only something that God can do. And so if you've entered into this new covenant, it's because God has done something by way of his promise in Jesus to say he'll write his law upon your heart and put it in your mind. Ezekiel goes on. He says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So he said, I'll take out this hard, stony heart that that doesn't know me, doesn't want to know me, that's darkened and calloused. And I'm going to put in this heart of flesh. And then he goes on, verse 27, and says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Amazing. You see, the very thing that was keeping them from the benefits of the covenant was obedience. And so in the new covenant, what happens is that God sent Jesus to do all the obeying for us, so we're in, if we're in Him. And then, He says, all right, now I'm going to take you and I'm going to change your heart so that you will be able to be faithful. You will be able to obey me. And so what we should see in the context of our lives is faithfulness to God. Because of His work in us, there's something in us that will continue to maintain this faithfulness, this faithfulness in God. Acknowledge the fact it's warm in here, to me anyway. My wife's not here. And uh, if you look sleepy, wake up, come on. Your faces are just a little bit sucked down. So just pinch your cheeks. I know it's warm, but this is the Word of God. I'm not the best preacher. I know that. But listen, this will help you. Because God has done something. I want you to be amazed by that. I want you to just sit through and go, okay, I know this stuff, ho-hum. Maybe you know this stuff. I hope you do. But it isn't ho-hum. It's stuff we should rejoice about all the time and be amazed about all the time because the new covenant has come and you're in it if you're a believer in Christ. And you should be sitting and you should be anticipating a question I'm going to ask when we get to the communion table, which is this, how did I get here? That'll really knock your socks off. 
And so this new covenant is coming. So Jeremiah speaks of this new covenant coming. The author of Hebrews says, in Jesus, this new covenant has come. And God has done this work in your minds and in your hearts. Jesus speaks of this, we know, in John in chapter 3. As he speaks of, 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 uh, to this man Nicodemus. Turn there, John 3, verse 1. Scripture says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that always to me sounds like a rather non sequitur. I mean, Nicodemus is talking about one thing, Jesus all of a sudden starts talking about another thing, but really Jesus is tying it all together. He's saying, if you were born again, you could see this. You'd know why. You'd know who I am. You'd know how I could do these things. But, but, but at this point, Nicodemus, you're not. And so I want to cut to the chase. I want to not play around. I want to get right to the deal. And I want to tell you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't perceive it. Because it's not on your mind. It's not on your radar. In fact, you're hostile to it. And so you need this work of the new covenant in order to enter in. You need this law to be written upon your mind. You need this law to be put in your heart. You need this radical transformation. And he says, that's what's, hap- that's what's happening. That's what happens uh, when you're born again. And that is a work of the Spirit. Because characteristic of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. Characteristic of, of all that Jesus has gained for us is His ascension and His sending the Spirit who then works in our lives to take this law of God, the very inclination, the very heart of God, and to place it upon ours so that we are inclined towards Him. And Jesus speaks of that as He speaks of this uh, new covenant coming that we're born again. So what should we expect? What should you expect is the nature of your life since God's law has been written Upon your hearts, put put upon your mind. I think first this, that all those things that are true in the law, all those things that are true, as God reflects his own heart, we are now able to embrace. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon once, I had to write this title down, called Divine and Supernatural Lights, Immediately Imparted to the Soul by the Spirit of God, shown to be both a scriptural and a rational doctrine. Now you know why I don't title my sermons. I'm rather intimidated by those old dead guys' titles. But he speaks of what takes place uh, in our mind and heart when the Spirit of God comes upon us to change us. I'm going to read some Jonathan Edwards, and I know this is just, this is foolhardy when the air conditioning hasn't come on yet. So listen. He writes this. He says, a spiritual light is not the suggesting of any new truths or propositions not contained in the Word of God. He says, so this, is, this is just Scripture. This isn't new stuff. This, this isn't just uh, some, some kind of special revelation that hits you that you couldn't find anywhere else. He says, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit wrote this. And so when He speaks to your heart, He's going to speak the same stuff. That's not the issue. It's not new information. So the suggesting of new truths or or doctrines to the mind, independent of any antecedent revelation of these propositions, 
either in word or writing, is inspiration, such as the prophets and the apostles had. But this spiritual light that I'm speaking of is quite different from inspiration. It reveals no new doctrine. It suggests no new proposition to the mind. It teaches no new thing of God or Christ or another world, not taught in the Bible, but only gives a due apprehension of those things that are taught in the Word of God. And he says this, that somehow, miraculously, all of our resistance to it is overcome. And we apprehend it. We grab a hold of it. And we go, that's right. Well, that's amazing. Because that moves a hardened, dead, stony heart to hear these things. How could that happen? It only happens because God goes into us and our minds and our hearts and he writes his will there. And that's a change. Not just a change. That's a root change. That's a radical change. That's a complete transformation of mind and heart. He goes on, Edwards does, to say this. This spiritual light is a true sense of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the word of God and a conviction of the truth and reality of them. This spiritual light primarily consists in the former of these, that is a real sense and apprehension of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the Word of God. A spiritual and saving conviction of the truth and reality of these things arises from such a sight of their divine excellency and glory so that this conviction of their truth is an effect and natural consequence of this sight of their divine glory. For you see, the mind of man is naturally full of prejudices against divine truth. It's full of enmity against the doctrines of the gospel. But when a person has discovered to him the divine excellency of Christian doctrines, this destroys the enmity, removed, removes those prejudices, sanctifies the reason, and causes it to lie open to the force of arguments for their truth, that is. We get it. It doesn't make us smarter. But it makes us receptive inclined to the truth of God. And we need to see that in the context of our own lives. That's what's happened. And because, you see, that's what's happened, there should be a whole reorientation of our lives. That's, that really is what we should expect. Now, it doesn't mean that our hearts are now good and trustworthy. It doesn't mean that because uh, God has changed my heart that now I can trust my heart. I can only trust my heart to the degree that God is, has renewed it. Now, a day will come when we're in glory when we'll be able to trust our hearts perfectly because they'll be perfectly renewed and perfectly restored and, and perfectly reflecting the heart of God. But now within us is this new inclination, but the old inclination isn't dead. We have this new inclination, but the old inclination is still there. But the difference is the old inclination no longer rules us. And so now we can, with great hope and with great confidence, expect our minds to be renewed. But you see, this grace, when it comes to change us, doesn't lead us to passivity, but to activity. God's grace never makes us more passive in relationship to Him. We just don't read this and go, cool, His law has been written on my mind and heart, I'm going to put up my feet and just relax, because now everything's going to be hunky-dory and just smooth sailing. If, if you believe that, then you're dead. Not only spiritually, but also probably physically. Because you can't believe that. It simply isn't accounted for by any of our experiences. We all know the struggle still with thinking God's thoughts and embracing them. But what he's saying now is, this will happen. 
you should have confidence, the full assurance of hope, that as you, as you seek God, which you will, you will mature in these things. And your heart will expand. And your mind will grow. And your understanding of Him will, will grow. And your love for Him will grow. And your obedience to Him will grow. You'll see these things. Have that full assurance of hope. Because now you see you're in. Now Christ has come. Now the Spirit of God has come upon you. And so when you come to the Scripture, understand that this Bible that we read is now resonating with our own hearts in a very significant way so that our minds are being renewed. That's why the Apostle Paul could write uh, in Romans and uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he could write this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Say, listen, this will happen now. In the Old Covenant, God would say that till he's blue in the face. But unless he worked in their hearts, it wouldn't take effect. But now he says, this will take effect. This is a promise of the New Covenant. This isn't just for a select few. This is for everybody in the New Covenant. So study the scripture with great hope and great confidence, knowing that as you do, your mind is being renewed all the time. And then he says the end result of that is that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so you should live your life as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. In verse 5 he says, we destroy uh, arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, now that's the life we're to live. And you understand that when we're not doing that, when we're not being renewed in, in our minds, when we're not taking every thought captive, because God has written His Word on our hearts and minds, that we're miserable. See, unbelievers aren't miserable when they're not being renewed in their minds according to God's ways. Unbelievers aren't miserable when they're not taking every thought captive. There are some unbelievers that are very content in the context of their lives. But you see, God can't let us stay content when we're not growing in these things. And so he says, listen, this is, this is the course of your life now. I've changed it. It's a radical renewal. It's a radical change. Your mind is only ultimately content with my thoughts. Your heart is only ultimately content with my ways. And when there is a divergence between the two, then you'll be miserable. And so you see, what we should find ourselves doing then is, is, is embracing all that the law says is true about God and all that the law says is true about us and not rebelling against it, but embracing it and seeing that God is holy and that we're not and thus we really do deserve the condemnation with which uh, the law says. See, one of the hardest things as I talk to unbelievers, it's not generally hard for me to convince people or to see them agree that they're sinners in the sight of God. That's a fairly easy thing. You just start talking about life and talking about God and they're pretty willing to concede that. What's difficult for people to concede is that they deserve hell because of that. 
because they really haven't seen the utter holiness of God yet. And they don't think that really what they've done is all that bad. And therefore, it's that deserving condemnation that people just can't embrace. That's what we're prejudiced against. But you see, once God's written his law upon your mind and heart, you say, of course, he is holy, I am not. Of course, I deserve condemnation. And you embrace that as true. But not only that, but because God has written in your heart, you also see the wisdom of his law and the grace that's in it that says, now there's a representative for you and there's a substitute for you. Embrace him. And so you find yourself drawn to Christ when he writes his law upon your heart and mind. You see, the intent of the old covenant through all the shadows and forms and all of that that pointed to Christ was that they would be drawn to Christ, that they'd see Christ in it. They just simply weren't. They simply didn't because of the hardness of their hearts. But now, you see, when he writes his law upon our minds and hearts, we're inclined to see Jesus and to embrace him and believe and then to be moved and motivated to renew our minds, to be moved and motivated to obey him, to be moved and motivated ah, to love him. We shouldn't be passive. When Paul writes to Titus, he puts it like this in Titus in chapter 2. In verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He says, listen, the grace of God has appeared. and He's brought salvation to us. And the way the New International Version puts it, I like it says simply this, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. See, that's the very point of it. Deep within us is the very law of God, the very heart of God. And it's saying to ungodliness, no, no, no. And finally this, because the law of God has been written on our hearts, we should have confidence that we'll continue to persevere. First John 5.18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. So that, you see, is our confidence, that he's done this work in us. We do belong to him, and that he'll protect us. Now, It was on that night that Jesus was betrayed that he, I suspect to some degree, shocked his disciples by using this new covenant language. He was around the table. Things seemed to be going on very normally. And then he took bread. And after giving thanks, again, very customary, he broke it and he, he gave it to his disciples and he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And once again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this 
in remembrance of me. He said, this new covenant has come. He says, therefore, this you can expect. God will put his laws in your mind. He will write them on your hearts. You can expect that the new covenant is coming. And therefore, you can expect that you will be, because of that work of God, faithful to walk in his ways. And therefore, the very direction of your life should be to love him and obey him. And then you might say, but what did I do to deserve that? And of course the answer is, you and I don't deserve that. Only Jesus deserved that. So then you might ask, all right, then how is it that Jesus did all this for me? And the answer, of course, is because he loved you. And you would say, well, what did I do to deserve that kind of love? And of course the answer is, Nothing, except rebel against him so that his love can be shown more pure and, and greater than any love could ever be. And you say, all right, but then, but then how do I, what do I do? How do I get into all of this? And you, the answer, of course, is, well, because he puts you into all of this. He's the one who does all of that to write his law upon your heart, put it in your mind, so that you can respond and believe and follow him. And then you say, but, and then he says, shush. Rejoice. Enjoy it. And then, live it. Because you can. Because he's in you. Working and willing his good pleasure. And his good pleasure is that you would be faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's amazing to think of what you've done. And not only to think these thoughts, but to embrace them, to believe them, to trust them, to set our whole life consistent with them. But we realize now that's the very inclination of our lives because of what you've done. So I pray that even now you'd cause us to be flabbergasted by that, be amazed by that, be captivated by that, and to come to you. And Father, even as we come to this table, we pray that you would set apart this bread and juice in such a way that will cause us to not only think upon Jesus, but to embrace all that is true in Him. Most assuredly that you have put your laws in our minds and written them on our hearts. That we may believe you and that we might be faithful to you. So now, Father, we pray that you would work in us and in this meal such that our faith would increase and grace would come to us in a way that would enable us to walk pleasing to you. 
And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it everyone whose laws, God's laws has been written on, have been written on their minds and written on their hearts. All those who embrace Christ, thus understanding themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. Therefore, believing in Jesus as the Savior of sinners, he's offered to us in the gospel. And therefore, desiring to live in such a way that is pleasing to God. If that's true of you, let me invite you to come to this table, these two sections down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, think this. His laws are in my mind, on my heart. Please come. Where's my coat? Oh, it's over there. I'm nice. Thank you. I was being reminded of that. Got to get it before my wife comes. The response to our benediction this morning is to sing together this great praise of God, this doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. Together, let us sing. Praise God from